We turn our attention now to the second chapter here of the book of Romans. And now, as you realize, the first chapter is really tough on people who don't know the Lord, right? Matter of fact, it's really hard on people in general because it calls into question, in essence, all of us before we came to Christ. And so it really doesn't matter, you know, if you're talking about the the really wicked person or you're talking about the person who uh, just kind of has a little bit of a difficulty maybe believing in God. But the second chapter now brings into view something that is so important for the remainder of mankind. Because there are people who believe they are morally good enough to stand in God's presence. There are people who believe that their good works are sufficient to get them to heaven. There are people who believe that if they just do the right thing, that somehow they can have a relationship with God. There are people that believe by their own human effort that they can reach the standard with which God will judge people. And so chapter 2 begins this series of understanding how does God judge? What does he look at? How does he view us? And this is so important for those people in your life who believe that they either don't need God or they're good enough to get there without a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it is that picture that we pick up as we'll begin in verse 1. And let's pray and ask God to speak through his word. Father, we again are so grateful for the opportunity to come together and study your word. And we pray that you would now instruct us from heaven, that these words would uh, speak life into those dead areas that we might have. We pray that you would uh, change those areas in our lives where we think wrongly and pray that you would bless us with your presence. Lord, would your Holy Spirit come and inhabit this place in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take tonight the first five verses. And therefore, again, therefore always looks back. And therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge. And so God is now, through the Apostle Paul, writing to the Roman Christians, saying, look, no matter how you look at this equation, you are inexcusable for the knowledge of God. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Isn't it interesting when you think about people in their condition, how most of the time the only thing they compare themselves to is other people. They very rarely will compare themselves to the full holiness of a completely perfect and righteous God. They'll just simply say, it's like, it's like the old adage, you know, if you're ever chased by a bear, you don't have to be fastest, you have to be faster than somebody else who's running with you. That's kind of the way we are with sin. Uh, I look at my own life and I say, well, I'm not as bad as that person, or I don't do the things that that group does, or I'm better than them, and so because I'm better than them, I must be okay with God. That's the conclusion. And here we learn that that is completely false. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. In other words, it's not according to a human standard. It's according to the truth of God, the truth of his word, to his absolute perfection. It is Jesus himself who called himself truth. He is ha-logos. He he is the truth. He's the one about whom we could say is absolutely perfect in his understanding and knowledge of everyone and everything. And so when we think about how God judges, we must start in the place of truth. You see, and do you think this, O man? You who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you really think that simply because on one hand, you see, in in many ways, even some Christians practice their walks with the Lord, much like a Muslim understands God's plan for mankind. 
that over here on this side are our good deeds, and over here on this side are our bad deeds on the great scale of life, and as long as I have as many little more good deeds that have bad deeds, then naturally Allah will accept me, and so somehow I'm going to be okay. You see, we judge by human standards. And we judge other people according to how we ourselves stack up to not his standards, but the standards that we have self-imposed. And so the Apostle Paul brings this to light for us. You see, because you're not going to escape the judgment of God. Now in Christ, the good news is that judgment will stand, you'll, you'll have that happen at the Bema seat, at the reward seat, where your deeds, both good and bad, will be judged, and those that are not so good will be tested with fire and found as chaff and burnt away, and those things that are good, you'll receive a crown for them. So in his grace and by his mercy you'll receive that good reward. But without Christ, every single person is going to have their works judged at the great white throne judgment. And when you get there, it won't matter if you get there with 10 sins or 10 billion sins. The result will be the same, eternal separation from God. And so he says, do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? And the answer is no. You're going to stand before God one day and give an account for everything you've ever said. Do you realize that? Good or bad? Now, praise God for the grace of God. Amen? Uh, you're, you're going to be able to stand there and say, covered by the blood. Jesus got that. But it doesn't excuse the actions that we undertake in this life. God's grace is not a license to sin. God's grace is not a reason for us to take our lives and say, I can live it any way I want. Because one day, we are all going to stand before a holy God, either in grace or in judgment. But the standard will be exactly the same in both places. Perfection. Total righteousness. The difference being you'll be judged by grace at the Bema seat and by the justice of God at the judgment seat of the great white throne. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? You see, if you take into account that God is one day going to judge you, whether good or bad, whether by grace or in perfect justice, if you take that into account, do you despise the richness of his goodness? You see, because God is eternally good. And we ought to be saying about now, praise the Lord. Amen? God is eternally good. But when you don't honor him for being eternally good by doing what is right, you do God a disservice and an injustice. And you trample the grace of God. You despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. You see, the goodness of God is not supposed to be an excuse for you to keep on living in sin. Living life your own way, doing your own thing. And yet many people have this view. Well, God didn't spank me, so it must be okay with him. God didn't cause my car to plow into a power pole, so God must be okay with this relationship that I'm in that's not of him. God didn't cause me to lose my home. So he must be okay with the sin that I'm constantly engaged in. You see, we pick up a wrong view of God when we misjudge the reason that he is good, that he suffers long, and that he is kind. The whole purpose of all of that, Scripture declares, is not so you can keep on doing your dumb stuff. It's so that you have time to repent so that when you reach glory as a believer, that there'll be many rewards for you to receive. And so that if you're an unbeliever, you can escape the justice and judgment of God. 
It's time to get right with God. But in accordance with the hardness and your impenitent heart, now that's a fancy way of saying unrepentant as well, your impenitent heart, your heart that does not have a desire to repent, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation on the righteous judgment of God. How does God judge? So we read chapter 1 and we come to the conclusion, man, people who don't have Jesus are a mess. They're going to be judged. And if you leave it there and you stop there, then you can begin to say, well, I'm not as bad as them. I must be okay with God. The natural conclusion is, so this chapter is written to those who might call themselves moralists, who might say that they're better than the average guy, the average woman, the average person who walks this earth, the person that says, I am okay with God because I am better than most people. You can find these people doing philanthropic work all over the world. You can find them recycling absolutely everything. They, you know, won't squish an ant. Uh, they, they feel like, well, that's life, so I'll, I'll make sure that I spare all life. I don't want to murder anything. So they're, they're moralists, good people. And again, nothing wrong with those things, by the way. It simply is that you cannot, no matter how good you are, be sufficiently good to warrant heaven. It's an impossibility. Many people believe that if they fail in the works effort, somehow they might be, as in this case, even exempted if they belong to the right people group. Well, I'm a Calvary Chapel person. I'm a Baptist. In this case, the Apostle Paul believed for a time that because, because he was a child of Israel, that he was of the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that surely God would overlook his faults and he'd be able to enter into the kingdom. The resulting conclusion for us, well, God only judges evil people. The Jewish people and the rabbis, many of them taught during the time that Paul was writing these things. They actually had sayings like, God loves Israel alone of all the nations. God will judge the Gentiles with one measure and the Jews with another. Those were common sayings of the rabbis. That there was a difference between the way God would deal with Israel and the way God would deal with the Gentiles. The book of Romans lays that whole thought process to waste. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul, when we get to chapter 11, is going to say one day all Israel will be saved. That, that there's such a lostness that goes with believing you're better than someone else that it could even become a, a, a religion unto itself. Some rabbis even taught that Abraham sat outside the gate of hell and would literally forcibly prevent any Jewish person from entering in. You see, you can begin to think that by some kind of association, maybe you were baptized at four years old. You were sprinkled as an infant. Your parents brought you to church. You've partaken of the sacraments. Baptize, take communion. Maybe you had your first confession. Perhaps you went to catechism. Maybe you spent a lot of time in Sunday school. Your parents were fine, upstanding Baptists. They even had their own pew inside the church with their name on it. I'm kind of universally moving all over the place because none of that's going to matter when you stand before a holy God. When you, he's not going to ask you, well, were you a member in good standing of you know, the First Baptist Church of El Cajon? It's where Connie and I got married. Did you receive the right hand of fellowship? It is not going to matter. That's not going to be the reason that you get into heaven. 
The reason that you get into heaven is that Jesus Christ will have been your personal Lord and Savior. He will have died for your sins. Your sins will have been espunged. God will remember them no more. His perfect righteousness, Christ's righteousness, will be placed on you, completely covering all of your debt, and you will be declared free from sin. That's all. But you see, people like to, well, you know, I'm better than this guy. They trust in those things. Even, and I'm going to, there's going to be some rocks going out tonight. A few of you all are going to, you're going to bark a little bit. You may even be trusting in what you perceive to be your eternal security. Now, I'm not trying to tell you you're not eternally secure because you are in Christ. But there are some people that carry that so far is to say that there's no need for repentance. I don't need to repent of anything. One of our presidential candidates who shall be nameless happens to be the man. (laughs) Has said that exact thing, same thing on national television. There's nothing I have to repent of. He was asked that question. Do you feel like you need to repent of sin? He said, I don't have anything to repent of. He's in exactly the case that Paul is talking about right here. You need to be very careful because it isn't about you owning your grandma's Bible. It's not about you, you know, having been a member of a church. It is about a personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. God looks at the outward morally person and the outward morally person, hear me well, is just as lost as the worst sinner. Did you know that? Without Christ, a perfectly moral person is still L-O-S-T lost. That's what your Bible declares. It says very plainly that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift that God gives is eternal life. You all, we all, must have the free gift. It doesn't come to you because you're morally upstanding. It comes to you because you've asked to have your sins erased. Including the sin of thinking you're better than everybody else. including that attitude that you have that says you're morally better than everyone else. God judges first with absolute knowledge. Notice what verse 1 says. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for the, those who judge practice the same things. This is such a universal truth about mankind. We know that verse chapter 1 has told us that the wrath of God comes upon the unbelievers because of their ungodliness and their unrighteousness. And now Paul says, well, be careful. Because you're not saved because you do good things. It becomes very, very clear. And again, Paul, I believe, is speaking largely to the Jewish population and his audience. Because their thought was, well, we're the children of Abraham. We have the law. We have the Pentateuch. We got the Levitical law. We have the feast days. We have the sacrifices. The Apostle Paul would write about his own life. He says, look, I have not transgressed the law. As a Jew, blameless. But I'm lost without Christ. You see, the Gentiles knew the basis of truth. That's why Paul spent so much time talking about you could know about God, you could know God's righteousness, you could even see his creative ability by simply observing the world around you. Remember we saw that in chapter 1. And so all people are responsible to that knowledge. The understanding there is a God, what does he want from me? But what he doesn't want is your pride and your arrogance. Believing that you're good enough. Because that leaves you outside of his blessings. 
even relatively un, unenlightened pagans, if you will, have a basic knowledge about God. They realize that there's someone out there, somewhere out there. That's a vast majority of the world has that understanding. It's not something that's new. And so God has absolute knowledge of the way that we think, the way that we act, the things that go through our minds. And so the same principles that apply to Christians apply to nominal Christians and true Christians and even people who think they're Christians but they're not saved. Remember when James said, faith without works is dead? And he goes on to say that I'll show you my faith by my works. Do you, do you know what he was saying? He's saying there's a direct correlation in the life of a redeemed person that the things that they do will explain who their allegiance is to. Who really is the Lord of their life? Who's the master? Now, it doesn't say that you'll be perfect in those things, but it does say that your life is supposed to be marked by a life that could be defined by Scripture, if you're a believer. How about all those people that that's not true? You see, God has a righteous standard of judgment with complete knowledge. He knows the person that's received the grace of God and the person who has not received the grace of God. And so his judgment is based on the absolute knowledge of who really is his child and who is not his child. Not the goofy ways that we try and make it look like we are his kids. Because there are a lot of believers that think if they just play Christianese, they come to church and they say the right words, they use Christian sayings and slogans, they may even put a dove on the back of their car. Maybe you got a fish back there. That fish has zero power to transform your heart and your mind. It can leave a nice gummy residue on the back of your car when it falls off. But it cannot save you. So God's not looking at the fish on the back of your car. God's not looking at the dove on the back of your car. God's not looking at your attendance at church. He's not looking at your tithe record. He is looking at one thing and one thing alone. What have you done with my son Jesus Christ? Have you received him truly as Lord and Savior? And have you lived your life in a way that's pleasing to him? The word to know here in verses 2 and 3, it says to know the judgment of God is according to truth, carries the idea of awareness. And it's common, it's unhidden, it's not something you have to go digging for. In other words, the judgment of God is according to truth in that sense that we know these things. God is not making this some great mystery. The judgment of God will surely come on the unrighteous, and it will be horrible. But the judgment of God also comes on those who think they're morally upright, who think they've fooled God. Can I tell you that there's always distortion in human perception? Never thought about that? I don't know about you, but I don't see anything perfectly. I've had a lot of things where, you know, I'm just... Any of you ever gone like to absolute battle mode over something, some truth, and you're like just driving home the point, and you get down to the very end and you realize your whole premise upon which you've based your argument is completely false. You are missing some little tiny tidbit of information, like the person you're talking about wasn't actually there. True story. I was having an argument with a guy about this whole thing that went on at the Bible college. We're just like, you know, well, you know, and he was there. Well, no, he wasn't there. He was enrolled the following semester. He wasn't even at the college. I had the wrong person. Not good. You know what my excuse is? I'm not God. Had to repent, had to say, I'm sorry, all those kind of things. But I don't have perfect knowledge. God has perfect knowledge. God has absolute truth when he judges. And so when he does that, he doesn't make any mistakes. Man's judgment never completely squares away with the truth. It just doesn't. 
Sometimes we get close. So God's going to judge those who practice evil. God is going to judge those who think they're good. And he'll do that with truth. Now, I don't know how many of you have gone through this experience, but when I was a young Christian, one of the things I used to do is I used to bargain with God. So I would let him know, well, I'll go to church twice a week if. And it was usually something like, you know, could you get me a raise or, you know, something like that. I would bargain with God. And I would make it seem like when I'm talking with God that somehow this was going to work out to his benefit. What can you give God? The answer is nothing. So I want, you know, you, you, you absolutely do know that God has a sense of humor, right? Look at us. Look at us. God has a sense of humor. Because look, wouldn't God be perfectly just to just wipe us all out? Seriously, wouldn't he? He would. So he would be perfectly just to do so, but he doesn't. He's long-suffering and kind and gentle. You see, he doesn't have any distortion. He doesn't have any ill motivation. God thinks about you perfectly. And he loves you perfectly. And he loves us. He loves all of the whole world perfectly. Not according to your standard or mine. But according to absolute truth. I think it's quite true that there is that still small voice that, that I believe speaks into every person's life and I believe it's one of the facets of the work of the Holy Spirit. God would be perfectly just, but through his long suffering and his grace, uh, that, that justice is held in check and he doesn't blot us out as he should. And so he's kind and, and gentle. God cautioned Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. He said, do not look at Eliab's appearance or at the height of his stature. For God does not, does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward. God looks at the heart. You see, we puff up our chests and we pretend that we're all that and really we're all that pile of dirt. God doesn't see this. It's one of the things that always amazes me about people in in film and and specifically in in Hollywood and those that, you know, pretend like they're okay with God simply because they give millions of dollars to charity. And many of them do, and it's a wonderful thing. Not disrespecting the, the money that's given to do good things. But they actually think that they can buy their way to God. It's like, well, I must be okay. I mean, I gave millions of dollars. God's not looking at your pocketbook. He's not looking at the pile of money you get. He's looking at your heart. What kind of heart do you have? You can't fool him, even though I probably, like most of you, have tried. And so he says, do you think you'll escape the judgment of God? And that that word that's used there, suppose, do you suppose this, carries the idea of calculation. Or estimating. We actually get our English term logic from the same Greek root. Do you think in your logical estimation of who you are before God that you're going to actually escape the justice and judgment of God? And the answer is, you shouldn't. If you know anything about God and you know anything about you, nah, the stuff that you do, he's still going to look at and go, that's chaff. That's wood, hay, and stubble. That needs to burn. And here's those handful of things that are gold. Now, the good news is, in Christ, you're going to be judged by Christ and not by you. Amen? That's the glory of it. But you see, you can reject even the thought of needing a Savior if you think that morality can surpass the righteousness of God. And many people do. Contemporary, forceful paraphrase of this verse, verse 3. I would read it like this. You dummy. Do you really figure that you've doped out an angle that will let you go up against God and get away with it? You don't have a chance. 
That's really the way it is. You don't have a chance. You do not stand a chance against the holiness of God. Neither do I. That gives me some comfort because that means there's exactly one way and one truth and one life. And no man comes to the Father but by Christ, but by Jesus. Comparing the ancient Israelites. Now remember, there's a beautiful thing about the the ancient Jewish people specifically, and really even to some degree the Jewish people today. They actually got to meet with God through Moses. When you talk about a special group of people, do you remember what they did with it while Moses was up getting the Ten Commandments? Aaron's down at the bottom. Well, look, he's been gone for 40 days. Let's party. (laughs) They're down there. They're doing some barbecue. They take all their jewelry. Well, we don't know how it turned into a golden calf. It just came out of the fire. We are incessantly wicked, aren't we? Moses has been gone stinking 40 days. And the people are down there. No more Moses, no more Moses. He can't tell us what to do. You see, that's our human nature. That's our flesh. That's your sin nature. Boy, it likes to rebel. Writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 says this. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? You see, the Jewish people got warned by God with a manifestation of his person before Moses. We have God incarnate in human flesh manifesting himself in Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, who died on Calvary's cross to say, look, this is the way, and this is the truth, and this is the life. What happened to the Jewish people in unbelief? They got to the border at Kadesh Barnea, and they refused to believe, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died. I'm pretty sure you don't want to join that club. You, you see, the book of Hebrews is this incredible story. And you ladies are going to get to go through it here. It's going to be your next study. It's going to be awesome. But because the Israelites refused to listen to God, he spoke to them on this earth through his law. And that generation perished in the wilderness. So here's the truth. The only way any person, no matter how mor- morally you are outwardly, no matter how religious can escape the judgment that you're going to receive apart from Jesus Christ. There is no other way. It's not a matter of how good you are. And because of that, God judges us through our absolute guilt. People don't like to believe that they're guilty. Matter of fact, we live in a society here in the United States of America that tries to obliterate guilt itself. Nobody's guilty of anything. I'm not responsible for anything. I've never done anything wrong. You can't even tell children that they're, you know. When I was in school, if you got an F, we still had the dunce hat. I mean, you sat in the corner with your nose to the wall and people ridiculed shot spit wads in the back of your hair. You know what? That humiliation did a wonderful thing. Now, I'm not suggesting you shoot spit wads in everybody's hair, but I'm telling you there's something really good about guilt. Because guilt can transform you going, you know, I really hate this. I, I really messed up here, and I don't like the results. I don't like what I got for my effort. And that is exactly how God sees guilt. He brings guilt into our lives to convict us of sin and of righteousness. The Holy Spirit does that. He says, look, you're guilty. We have learned in our American society that you're not supposed to ever feel guilty about anything. And that is extremely tragic. It is affecting people's eternal lives. Because I don't want to feel guilty. Look, before a holy God, every last one of us is stone cold, dead, guilty, period. No one's going to escape that. 
You are guilty, and so am I. We acknowledge that, and it does something good. Notice verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? In other words, God, in his wonderful character of goodness, and his suffering long, his long-suffering, and his forbearance, his passing over of the actual penalty that you should pay, should pay. When you go to a mortgage banker, any, any of you ever had a problem with a mortgage, and you know you can go to your mortgage banker, and one of the things the mortgage banker can do is they can issue you a forbearance. A forbearance does not excuse you of the debt that you have. The forbearance says that we're going to calculate all of this interest, and we're going to put it on the backside of the loan. You still owe 100% of it. But we're not going to foreclose on your home. That's called a forbearance. It's the exact same thing that you have here. God, in his forbearance with mankind, says, look, there's no way you can pay the debt right now. It's too much for you. We're going to collect all that. We're going to put it over here. And if in the meantime you receive the grace gift and you come to faith in Christ, we're going to now apply that on the other end and we're going to then eliminate all the debt when you pass out of this life and into the next. It will be forgiven you here. You see, but people look at the forbearance of God and they go, ha, he's let me get away with whatever I want. I can live my life however I want. You see, our absolute guilt, every intentional sin, every unintentional sin, requires the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God forbears it. The Old Testament book of Hosea gives us this incredible picture of God who declared his love for his people. The 11th chapter there in Hosea in verse 1, it says, When you, Israel, were a youth, I loved you. And out of Egypt I called you as my son. And it goes on in verses 3 and 4, And I taught Ephraim to walk and took him in my arms, and I led him with the cords of man, the bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the, the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. And by the time you get to verse 7, here's what it says. My people are bent on turning from me. And though they call them to the one high God, none at all exalts him. You see, the goodness of God can lead people to believe that they can do whatever they want. The goodness of God should drive us to serve the Lord with a whole heart. I love the Lord with all of our being. I give our lives fully and completely to him so that there's nothing hidden, so that there's little to forgive. Wouldn't it be awesome if you stepped into glory and from the time you gave your life to Christ until the time you got there, there was nothing left for God to wipe out. It was just a stack of crowns. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in and oh, by the way, we kind of had to tear up a couple of streets to make your crowns. But so many people look at God's forbearance. In other words, he's not punishing us right here and right now as his approval. Brothers and sisters, do not let that be you. Do not let the forbearance and the long-suffering of God be your excuse to think that God's okay with your sin. Because he's not. Every sin that you committed before you came to Christ was taken care of at the cross. Every sin that you commit after you come to faith in Christ is another stripe on Jesus' back that you know about. Don't be Jesus. It's not a good thing. God doesn't take that lightly. And I want to teach this passage the way Paul intended. It's not an easy one. Because it calls into question our motivation, doesn't it? Does it not call into question our motivation for why we do what we do as believers? You see, if your goal is to be well-pleasing to the Lord, you're golden, you're good to go. If your goal is to do whatever you want and pass it off as godly, you got some problems. you got some issues. Praise God, grace can take care of those issues. God's own kindness reflected in his children 
It's one of the, the gracious pieces of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, and it's exemplified in the kindness of God. But forbearance means to hold back, keep back that judgment, to designate a truce, the, the cessation of hostility so that you can get right. Patience is, is when a powerful ruler does not send the army to destroy that small village. You, you see, that's patience on God's part. He's a mighty army. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Amen? And so he could do whatever he wants to do with us, but he chooses not to do it. He says, I'll keep my power in check to give you an opportunity to make sure that you're walking as closely with me as you can. Sometimes we get this so wrong, we even judge God. You realize a lot of people don't see God as being good? You listen to the news media, you're going to find a lot of people that believe that you who are Bible-believing Christians, we who are Bible-believing Christians, serve a God who's mean-spirited and angry. That hates people, if he exists at all. It's because they judge God. They judge his forbearance and his patience and his kindness as if he does not care. Or if he's just simply allowing these things to go, or he can do nothing about it. We even judge God. Because of his goodness. How does God judge? Perfectly. So when he lets things slide, it's not because he likes it. It's because he's waiting for us to turn. He's waiting for us to make it right. He's giving us opportunity. Rather than asking why God allows bad things to happen to seemingly good people, I think we ought to ask why he allows good things to happen to bad people like me. Ever thought about that? Instead of asking yourself, why does God allow hurricanes? Why not ask God why your house is not in front of the hurricane? Because there's nothing special about us that God should withhold all of those things. It is only his goodness that allows good things to come to anyone and everyone. And praise God, they do. That's the glory of it. God is so eternally good that by and large, it's his goodness that we see. It's not his justice. It's not his judgment. If God were to so to speak, wake up in the morning and he was having a judging day, this world is done, amen? <laughs> There's enough. He can just look at it, well, <laughs> start over. But he doesn't. He's eternally good. He's eternally forbearing. He's eternally patient. And so he doesn't do those things. Remember how long he waited? Think about this. In the life of Noah, God waited 120 years of people mocking him and mocking Noah and being completely disrespectful and thumbing their nose at God. Oh, sure, it's going to rain. And the same story, it's going to rain. You need to turn. You need to repent. At the end of that, do you remember what God said about humankind? In their hearts were always continually evil. The forbearance of God, the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God, and the kindness of God was turned against God. So that mankind actually got more wicked. Don't let the goodness of God pass you by. God loves us. But he doesn't strive forever with anyone. You don't want to push him to the limits of his goodness. So you never want to misjudge God's kindness in that sense. While you have time, you repent. You say, look, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm a mess. I admit I'm a mess. And I'm turning over a new leaf right now. And you do your best to stay a turned over leaf. Amen? God will meet you in those places where your life isn't as it should be. But don't misuse his kindness. 
The word that's used here in this passage means to turn around. It means to repent. And the word that's translated stubbornness in this passage is an interesting one. From it, we actually get the word sclerosis, which means a hardening. So if you happen to be someone who's here and you have arteriosclerosis, you have a hardening of the arteries in your heart. They, have no, they no longer have pliability. They're rigid. Instead of being a flexible hose, they are now a, a very stiff pipe. They cannot do so. When your heart beats, that blood pressure has no place to go, and very often it just blows a hole in your heart. That's what God's talking about. Don't be stubborn. Don't become so hardened that when pressures come into your life that you blow up. You need to remain pliable. You need to have a heart that's flesh, not one that's stone. It's exactly what Ezekiel 36 reminds us. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Remove the heart of stone. That's that work of the spirit that comes in. It's an interesting corollary, corollary between what Jesus said to the Jewish people regarding divorce. You remember, they were trying to test Jesus. They were talking about divorce. He said, did not Moses say... That you could give a certificate of divorce? Do you remember what Jesus said? From the beginning it was not so, but because of the hardness of men's hearts. You see, you don't want to misjudge the goodness of God, the long-suffering of God, His kindness. That day of wrath is going to come still. Well, praise God, we've not been appointed to it as believers, amen? Those who by grace have been saved through faith. We're not going to see that day of wrath. We're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. But God still sees everything. And we've got so much work to do while we're here. And so I would just simply ask you, don't, don't magnify the problem that we already have. Our problem is pretty obvious, you know, our, our, our lives, our stubbornness. There's so many things that you can look in God's Word, especially the Old Testament. Why did God send a bear to kill 40 children in Israel just for mocking the prophet Elisha? You ever think through some of those things? There's some pretty crazy stories in the Old Testament. Why did, why did God instantly, instantly slay Uzzah? Yark tips. It's going to fall down. It's going to go to the ground. And he kills the man who touched it. But he spared the heathens that were all over the place. You see, there's a lot of questions we can't answer. So don't magnify the problem by being stubborn hearted. Believe what God's word says. There's anything I can tell you. You're not going to figure all this out while you're still here on this earth. We get there, we can ask Jesus himself. As we close up tonight, I'm going to have the worship team come back up. Doxa is going to come out. I'm going to ask some of the pastors to come forward. And I want to leave you with this. You may not ever have thought about this, but you realize that every sin, every sin, as far as God's concerned, carries a death sentence. Did you know that? See, we think in the context of the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there were actually 35 sins that are listed that carried a death sentence. 35 out of all the things you could do. As far as the Jewish people were concerned, there were 35 things you could do and you could die for it. That's some pretty crazy stuff. But as far as God's concerned, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So unless you have the sin taken care of, every sin carries a death sentence. But the free gift of God, Romans 6.23, yeah, is eternal life in Christ Jesus as Lord. So you know what? I'm thinking that's a pretty good deal. I think that's exactly what God intends as he forbears with us and is kind to us 
and is good to us and loves on us and gives us a ton of time. It's not so we can go about doing things our way. It's so that we can repent and turn to him his way. Every sin. So don't try and pay that price. Let Jesus pay it for you. Amen? We're going to pray. Have some pastors come forward. If you need prayer tonight, got some stuff you need to do business with God, let him have those things. Don't carry them out of here. Leave them here. Amen? Father, we thank you that your love is without end and that that love is a love that's willing to suffer long. And we thank you for that. And God, I want to pray tonight there's anyone here that's never invited you, Jesus, into their life. They've never said yes to that cleansing flow that tonight for them would be that time of salvation that they would simply confess as we have an opportunity now to pray and to do business with you we pray that you would by your holy spirit convince and convict of the truth of the gospel that you jesus came into this world that the world through you would be saved that your sacrifice on the cross was sufficient for all of our sin that we need only invite you in and you will come in and sup with us you will be our lord you will be our savior And you will inscribe our names in the Lamb's Book of Life. And we ask now, God, that if there's anyone here, that they would receive that free gift of grace. For those that are maybe struggling, God, would you just touch us tonight? God, maybe we thought we were good enough to not need you. Maybe we came in and we thought that good works could save us. Pray that we turn from that thought, cling to the grace of God. We love you, we praise you, we bless you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. God's people all said, amen. Would you stand? As Pete and the band lead us in worship, if you need prayer, if you're here tonight and you want to know Jesus and you don't know him, these pastors are here to pray with you. Don't leave here without Jesus because he's the only answer to what ails us. Amen.